So this morning, we're continuing our, our theme, and we've been talking in quite a bit of depth all week about meditation and the various aspects. And so I want to go a little bit further because our practice, our Kriya Yoga practice, is more than just a meditation technique. It is really, it's a lifestyle. It's a way of being. So it's defined, Patanjali defines um, Kriya Yoga in the second chapter of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And in the first sutra of the second chapter, he says, Tapas, Swadhyaya, Ishvara, Pranidhana. Tapas, this is self-discipline. Swadhyaya, this is self-study. And Ishvara, Pranidhana, that is to feel ourselves merging with, to be one with God, to let go of the ego or the sense of separation outsideness. So, so these three three aspects together: um, self-discipline, self-study, and relying upon the infinite at all times. This is the path of Kriya Yoga. So this is what he says. And in the second sutra, in the second chapter, he says the reason that we practice is to be able to experience samadhi, to be effective and efficient in our meditation practice, and to remove the obstacles that stand in way in the way of our free, unfettered, uh, un, unlimited expression, to be able to live fully. So we practice Kriya Yoga. These practices, uh, these actions we take, are practiced in order to assist our meditation, our awakening, our samadhi, and also to remove the obstacles in our life, the conditionings and the places where we get stuck so that we can live free. And when we talk about self-discipline, tapas, the actual Sanskrit word tapas means to cook, to heat. And so tapas, self-discipline, is a, is a process where we are transforming, we're making changes in ourselves, and sometimes it takes some heat. Sometimes we have to put some energy into what we're doing in order to change course, in order to remove bad ha bad habits, um, erroneous ways of thinking, non-useful behaviors, addictions, uh, whatever it is that we find ourselves, however we find ourselves living in ways that are not in harmony with what we know to be the ideal, and we make changes. And, and discipline is simply a matter of making a decision to be a different way, making a decision to do something, and then following through and doing it. So this is discipline. And so, so our self-discipline, our intent, intensive self-discipline is focused on um, paying attention to how we're thinking, feeling, acting. And this is especially the acting, what we're doing. So the doing is the is the thing that we get a hold of with our self-discipline and we're able to redirect ourselves in the way that's in harmony with what's ideal and best for us and for everyone around us. So we say self-discipline, self-study is examination of the nature of what am I. And, and Roy would re remind us again and again, not who am I, but what am I. Who we are is the character that we've decided to be. Who we are is the role that we're playing, the persona. And the word persona, personality, character, the word persona comes from Greek. And it was a Greek word for mask. 
So persona actually in Greek meant mask, and it came from the Latin, which was per, is through, and sona is sound. Through, sound going through. So the mask in those days had a little megaphone built into the mouthpiece so that it would amplify the voice so the people out in the audience, out there in the Colosseum, they could hear because they didn't have amplifiers and, you know, headphones and things. So in order to be heard out in the audience, they made these little masks with these little megaphones built in and the, the sound would go through, per, go through, sona, sound. And so persona is the mask that we wear, the personality. And just like an actor in a play, we adopt this role, we become this character, and we adopt the characteristics of this role. We decide how we're going to dress, where we're going to live, who we're going to be in relationship with. We decide all these things. And I know some people say, well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't decide that. You know, I, I have responsibilities and, and I have to do this and I have to do that. You have to agree to these things. And in your agreement, you are making the decision. You either go along with it or you change. And, and so what we are right now, the, the persona, the character we are right now, we have, we have put this together. We have built this. We have constructed this. Either intentionally, we have adopted things that we thought were cool, you know, wow, this would be kind of neat. Or we have allowed others to influence us, our parents and our teachers, to influence us and guide us and tell us this is what would be good for us, you know. And so, so what we've been told in the past and we accept and what we have experienced for ourselves and we have, you know, assimilated to it for ourselves and made part of ourselves. All these things become part of this character, but it's just like the actor going on the stage. He puts on the mask, puts on the personality, puts on the clothing, adopts the role, and then goes through the drama of the play. And then at the end of the play, he takes off the mask and takes off the, the uh, costume and it returns to his original self or her original self. So... So in the same way, we are consciousness, pure consciousness identified with this character. And we know because we're able to experience, feel ourselves as the seer, the witness that's kind of observing this whole drama of a lifetime. At one level, we're deeply involved and we're, we're enchanted and drawn into the drama. And on another level, we're just noticing and we're noticing, wow, this is really not pleasant. So here we are feeling unpleasant, and at the same time, we're noticing that we're feeling unpleasant. And what's the noticer? You see, this is this is this more subtle level of awareness. Or we're having a great time. I remember um, reading about Ramana Maharshi, great saint in India, South India, uh, from the last century. And, and people would come to Ramana Maharshi, and they would ask him, they'd say, what can I do? You know, I have this... I have this ter terrible uh, challenge in my relationship, and I just don't know what to do. Baba, please tell me, you know, give me some insight. And he would say, well, who's having the problem? You know, who is it that's noticing that there's a problem in the first place? What is it that's noticing that there's something that has to be changed, that something has to happen? 
the noticer, the witness, that's you. And when you when you move your awareness into that level, then you have the ability to make any adjustments in the character that you need to. See? So if we first recognize that we are not trapped in this role, that we have had complicity in creating our adventure of a lifetime, and we have agreed to doing the things that we have done, going the places we have gone, you know, following invitations along the way, but, but each time we chose, yes, I'll go, or no, I won't go, see? And so as a result, we are at some level responsible for our life. It's like we're having the adventure, we're having this movie of a lifetime, and we're the ones behind the scenes that are writing the script. And, and you know, when I talk to people many times when I'm counseling people, <laughs> you know, all they can tell me is that they really hate the way their movie's coming out. And I say, well, you know, okay, change. Rewrite the script. Be different. Have a different life, you know. If we had complicity in putting it here, then we can also have uh, input into changing and altering it in useful, positive ways. So, and so, um, so our self-discipline is allowing ourselves to make those changes, allowing ourselves to recognize that we are not trapped. We're not trapped as a separate entity, as this character that we've become so identified with. You know, it's really amazing, this vehicle I've been hanging around with for all these years. Um, but it's not me. The real me, the real essence of me, uh, existed before there was a body to be playing with and will continue to exist when, uh, whenever it hits its sell-by date and gets, you know, turned into something else. So, so we, we can move lightly through life. We don't have to, it doesn't have to be so heavy and so, uh, oppressive and we don't have to allow ourselves to get so trapped in this, uh, idea that we're really stuck and limited and, separate and outside. So just being aware of this and then starting to notice, notice what's happening and then notice the noticing, you see. Notice that I am the witness, I am the seer, and as such, I can, you know, make adjustments. Now there is a, you know, there is a, a, a philosophy, a part of this philosophy that goes along and says, well, you know, part of what's happening to us is the result of our karma. So we have these some scars, these are impressions, subconscious impressions, and these tend to uh, blossom, they tend to, to, to dominate when the environment is right. So it's just like there are seeds out in my garden and there's, they sit there dormant all winter, and then as soon as it warms up and starts to rain, the weeds pop out and there's thousands of them. I spent an hour yesterday just pulling, 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 pulling my little weeds. So these weeds, these some scars pop up when the conditions are right. So we may have something that we've been carrying around, unresolved issues, things that are just kind of down in the past, and, there, and it hasn't been relevant. But all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a different relationship, or the environment changes, or the conditions around us. You know, everybody has to stay home. You have a pandemic comes out. And then this creates the environment that allows these some scars to come up and we start being really upset, irritable, 
or feeling sorry for ourselves or remorseful or grief grieving or you know these different things that come up and they're they're all we're not trying to get rid of these emotions but we want to keep them in their place that is we want to recognize that emotions are kind of the way we taste life so there are many flavors of life and and even though we may have preferences for some over others they're all just ways of tasting and interacting and participating with life so we acknowledge them and then when we see ones that are not not to our liking not to, not to our preference then we uh, we don't put more attention in them we allow those to to go to 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 wither you know i don't water my weeds i water my tomatoes and i water my basil and i you know avoid putting anything on the weeds that will encourage them and so they eventually go away right even that in the hot sun so so uh so the, but these karmas that come uh there still are impulses and there's still things at this at this deep soul level that will be eventually uh you know come to come to uh uh come to a head they'll find they'll eventually come to a place where they need to be resolved and we have some control over that too so so karma is kind of like cause and effect um Whatever we're doing right now is a cause that will eventually pr produce some effect. And whatever we're, whatever we're experiencing right now is an effect that is the result of some cause that was started in the past. This is how life works, cause and effect. Nothing happens spontaneously out of nothing. Everything comes out of something before on the material level. And so, so there was, a given amount whatever the energy of the universe is that that's what was allocated at the at the creation time so there is this energy and this energy is is uh is consistent we can never lose it we can never gain it it just keeps changing forms changing forms changing forms and so so as we uh experience the, the, the these karmas coming up and they're just balancing this cause and effect relationship the things that i've done if i did really nice things and was really serviceful and supportive and made great contributions then i have some scars i have tracings that are positive these are positive karmas these are good things and if i've been you know miserly and uh judgmental and nasty to people or, or manipulative and these are negative karmas these make some scars these tracings that are negative and and some sometimes on a, in a very simplistic way kind of the kindergarten way of looking at this is well i've done more good things than bad things and the good things neutralize and outweigh the bad things so i just have to keep doing more and more good to sort of counteract all the bad and it'd be wonderful if that was the case because then it would be like the bank you know we just got in and invest in good things until we finally you know tip the scale so far that there's no more bad but it doesn't work that way the karma of a negative action something that we did has to be balanced in kind and so if we were very unkind to someone well that unkindness has to be balanced out 
either directly with them or through a channel that relates to them somehow. So these things always are connected. The, the word in Sanskrit is Ranubandhana. We have these connections, these threads between one another. In the same way, if we do wonderful, good things for people, then we create karmas and they then are beholden to us. You see, then there is a balance, an energy balance, a cosmic energy balance that will come to play at some point. So all these are happening. And so this sounds kind of fatalistic, like, wow, if I'm being, you know, driven around in this lifetime by these karmas, these impulses and these, you know, trying to, the universe trying to continually balance the books, which is, you know, it never happens because we're in the middle of acting. So we're creating new karmas all the time. So, so wow, that gets to be a little bit interesting. However, one of the reasons that we're on our spiritual awakening path is that we, so that we live mindfully. So as we become disciplined, we become intentional in the way we live and we live not to do something for ourselves. We don't live from this egotistical standpoint where I feel I'm separate, but rather we live as a channel through which God is flowing. So God is God is this body and God is the mind and God is the actions and God is interacting with itself. And so if I'm just allowing this process to happen, if I'm allowing God to express through me as me and to interact with itself, then I'm no longer accumulating any karma. Then it's not about me. Then it's not I that I'm doing anything, you see. And so, and so as we as we uh, awaken on our spiritual path, we we re reduce the amount of new karmas that we are accumulating. And the other thing that happens is as we become more conscious of how we're acting and how we're thinking and how we're reacting and how this mind brain kind of how it works and we get some control over that, then we're able to kind of neutralize the karmas that exist. And I remember Dr. Swoboda said, he said, you know, you may have the karma that a rock has to hit you on the head. So this is, you know, this karma will come out. So at some point, the rock has to fall in your head. Perhaps in some previous lifetime, you threw a rock at somebody and hit them on the head. You know, however, this cosmic balance thing works. But this is a karma. And it's like, you know, there's an agreement in the universe that this has got to happen and you've got to take your take your shot, you know, take your hit. So, but what he says is um, the, the rock that hits your head can be a one gram rock or it can be a one kilo rock or it can be a one ton rock. And if it's a one gram rock, it's going to bounce off and you're not even going to feel it. And if it's a one ton rock, it's going to squash you flat and you're not going to feel that either. But if it's a one kilo rock, it might be nice to have a hard hat, you know, have a helmet. So, so in our spiritual practice, what happens is we are neutralizing these karmas. We are reducing the effects, the negative effects, so that as we go through life, we may see, you know, little wobbles here and there. Things come up, things that need to be dealt with, but they're in a, in a, form and then it coming to us in a manner that we can deal with easily rather than the way we remember many years ago when some of these things would pop up and it would just ruin us for a week or a month or 
or six months, you know, we'd be, we'd be heartbroken and, and living in grief and, and separate and uh, feeling sorry for ourselves and going around and, you know, and having a terrible depression or, or becoming quite angry and upset and, you know, judgmental and confrontational. We can get into these really strong, strong emotional places. And these oftentimes are the blossoming of these karmas within us that lead us to this. And so as we go forward with our spiritual practice, we neutralize these and they become, you know, wimps. Like they talk about this coronavirus as, as, as uh, much damage as it's causing on the planet. It's really a weak thing. It's very wimpy and, it, and it's very easy to get rid of it. So, I mean, if, if, as far as being in us or being on surfaces and things. So, so it's not a really strong force that we have to be uh, concerned with. Um, and so these karmas can be reduced, reduced, reduced to the place where they're no longer so uh, oppressive. So action, Kriya, Kriya Yoga, Kriya means action. And so in yoga means bringing together attention, awareness with our essence of being. So we are taking the actions that allow us to do this, to be awake, to be liberated. And then our self-study, we, we observe how we're thinking. What am I thinking? How am I, what am I thinking about? What do I think about myself? See, and we, so we, we start to observe what's going on inside of this mind brain, what kind of reactions we have, what kind of responses, what kind of emotions are bubbling up. So we look, look, look at ourselves. To, to learn about it. And then we also look deeply within. So we sit in meditation and we allow the, the senses to be quiet and then we allow the thoughts to be quiet and then we allow ourselves to, to wake up, to expand into this experience of oneness, of wholeness. So we are st this is another way we study what am I? What's going on inside? And then we also study by uh, reading the teachings of wise ones, you know, we read Mr. Davis's books or or the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras or uh, Bhagavad Gita or any of these texts that we find useful that help to educate us, to help to show us and remind us of what we are and what our relationship with this larger reality is. So this is self-study. This is the second part. And as we as we observe ourselves, as we study ourselves. We begin to see the things that we may need to take over to the discipline department to make changes. We may see, oh, look, I've got this habit of being really worried. Or I've got this habit of getting angry or critical about some things. You know, I'm, and I tend to be kind of judgmental and I don't give people the benefit of the doubt. So maybe, maybe that's something that I can create a discipline around. And now I'm going to be very mindful and not, and and just hold my tongue, count to 10, do whatever I can do to not be critical and to allow myself to, to, to have that reaction, that response, be neutralized and get rid of it. So self-study, we observe, and then we take observations and use those in our discipline to make the alterations and the changes that, we're, that are useful, whatever we need to do. And then the third third. Uh, leg of this tripod, you know, the tripod to hold us up, the three legs make it solid, steady. 
So the third leg is Ishvara Pranidhana, and this is to rely upon the infinite at all times. This is to have total faith that there is only one thing here, and that's God, and that we're part of it. So we say to, to let go of the ego, the sense of separation, um, but what this means is that we feel ourselves, we experience ourselves to be one with this wholeness, one with this ultimate reality, one with God. And because this is the case that we are one with it, we are, we live and move and have our being in it, you see, because this is the case. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be worried and we don't have to manipulate things. Everything is going to happen naturally and flow through us when we're open to that. So rather than feeling ourselves to be outside and separate, we feel ourselves to be connected. And so then this feeling of connection becomes easier and easier if we are waking up, if we're spending some time in clear awareness without thinking, without having to be identified with the, with the persona, and take the mask off from time to time and just be. Just be. I was speaking, talking to my wife last night, and we were, and uh, she was commenting. She says, "You know how much we love to take pictures, and all these beautiful pictures of nature and little creatures and all this." And she said, "I'm starting to become aware that when I go on my walks, I'm spending more time looking for a nice picture to take than I am just being. To just be, not to be looking for something to do, not to be." You know, constantly using the mind and and moving here and moving there, rajasic, but rather to just allow ourselves to be. From time to time, we can not have to have a story, not have to have a narration. We can go on our walk and breathe, and without having to think about anything, there is this experience of being. And if you if you haven't uh, touched back into that everybody's done it i know we do because it's just it's part of our natural processes but uh but the temptation is to get the mind going again it's become such a habit it's the, the mind is so addicted to this narration process um that it can be quite oppressive and so so if we haven't uh, had the opportunity given ourselves the opportunity to just sit out in nature you know, sit by the river, sit by the lake, sit by the ocean, sit by a tree, any tree, and or just go for a walk in nature, um, go to a park, wherever you can, and to just walk and just allow yourself to be. When you notice that you're thinking, we can have a little mantra. I, I made a mantra up for this, especially for you today. And the mantra is being. So when you inhale, as you're walking along, when you inhale, you just inhale and you hear be. And when you're exhaling, ing. So your breath is being. You're just constantly reminding yourself that I'm in this being and I don't have to think about anything. And I can be just open to whatever's happening. Allow the mind just hang up with this little, this little mantra. And the rest of you has the opportunity then to experience, experience the birds chirping, experience the blue sky, experience the leaves on the trees and the gravel or the, you know, the dirt under your feet. Um, everything can be experienced and there is so much. I mean, the, the, the number of uh, possible things to experience, to see, to relate to is, is virtually infinite everywhere we are.
And if we just are open, if we're not superimposing our predis, you know, our ideas, our expectations, if we're just open, um, then these things present themselves to us. They talk to us. They don't talk to us with this verbal narrator. They talk to us with this feeling. They communicate with us, but we have to stop this to be able to listen to this. See? And so being is resting with that heart chakra we were talking about earlier. It's where our feeling is. Thinking, feeling. Both, we need both. We need to be able to focus attention. We need bright in intellect. We need discerning, discriminating. We need intuition. And we need the heart. We need the feeling, this exp direct experience of reality. These two need to function together. And, 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 and in the Western culture in these days, we have been so acclimated to staying in the head all the time. Everything lives in the mind. We overthink everything. And then we worry that we haven't thought enough about what we've overthought. It just, you know, it just becomes quite, quite interesting. So, so we can just stop for a while, you know, go outside and breathe. Um, go find a tree or a plant or something that, uh, that kind of calls to you and just sit there with it and just, just be open. Ask it, well, what do you have to tell me? You know, and it's not going to speak to you in words. It's going to speak to you directly and it may you may have to sit with it for a while to to allow yourself to get quiet enough to start listening and maybe you have to sit with it for a while longer to let it know that you're really serious about communicating but you know you can just experiment just see what happens allow yourself to be open there is a this world is full of awe and wonder and magic and, you know, unless we're looking for that, unless we're open to that, uh, we're going to continue to listen to the narrator, the internal dialogue, and and find ourselves, you know, down the timeline wondering what happened to our life, you know, while we were paying attention to the, all this information that was being um, pushed through. So we want to be able to let go of the ego, this sense of limitation separation we want to allow ourselves to feel like we're really moving in harmony with life and we can do that we can do that and when we do even when we start even when we do it a little bit we find that we feel better we find that this is you know enlivening we start to really live literally live we become sensitive to the prana the energy the life force moving through this system as the system we become sensitive to our relationship with the world around us, the environment. We become more sensitive to the beautiful relationships with the individuals that we're sharing the planet with. All these things are, are available to us, but we have to we have to have that be something that we're interested in. We have to put our attention there. So uh so that's Kriya Yoga and uh I mean enough Kriya Yoga for for now. Our time is is getting a little short. And if there are questions, please, uh, you know, you can type them in on the chat thing or you can raise your hand at any point. But I do want to just take another couple of minutes because 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 we haven't spoken about this this week and I don't want to um, end without it. And that is to acknowledge our gurus. And our guru here directly, my guru, is Roy Eugene Davis. 
And the word guru, uh, it, it, many Sanskrit words have different meanings depending on the connotation, being how they're used and in, in the way that they're used. So the same word guru, which means the dispeller of darkness. So, so light, which takes away the darkness. So this is one definition of guru. Another definition is teacher. So, so any teacher is literally a guru. So this word guru means teacher. And, and probably the main definition of guru is heavy. Heavy. Solid. So the guru is that which gives us solidity, structure. So rather than being living in our head, in our mind, living in a world of concepts and ideas about what we think is happening and what we think we are and what's going on and all these imaginings that come up and they keep us distracted and upset and emotional. Instead, the guru is the heavy. He's the solid rock, the foundation. And we come back to the guru and this sound solid foundation connects us, connects us with earth, connects us with reality. So this is our this is our lifeline. This is the anchor that we have to connect us with what's real. This is our guru. So, and so we want to, number one, we want to honor that relationship because in honoring that relationship, this is a, a very real thing. This anchor that we have to reality uh, is a very real thing. And the guru's consciousness, this, the consciousness, the awareness, which is really God, you see, all the all authentic gurus say, "Well, I'm not the guru. It's really God inside that's impelling me to say these things. It's giving me these words. It's leading me here. So, I, so I, I really am not taking personal responsibility for this. It's God. God is the guru, and so I am assuming I'm playing the role for your benefit to make that connection with reality. So this is our guru." And there is a prayer in Sanskrit, um, Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Devo Mahaishvara, Guru Sakshat, Param Brahma, Tashmai Shri Guruve Namaha. So this is a Sanskrit prayer. And Guru Brahma means the Guru is everything. Everything is my teacher. Everything is the Guru. Everything is my connection. Guru Vishnu. Vishnu is the preserver and that is all the actions the things that i'm doing in my life all the relationships the events everything that's happening in my life is my teacher guru vishnu my teacher is my life what's happening guru sakshat i mean um uh, guru devo mahaishvara mahaishvara is shiva and that is the transformation, the transformative part. So my teacher is that which changes me and the transformations that I go through and, and the maturing and the, and the growth. This is my guru. This is my teacher. Guru Sakshat Param Brahma. Guru is everything, everywhere. That's what this says. Tashmai Shri Guru Ve Namaha. And so this is our prayer is to be to be aligned with to be attuned with our guru so so mr davis our guru here um and and uh, 
is such a powerful connection and a powerful consciousness for us. And so it's worthwhile for us to go back and to read and to watch his videos and to listen to his talks and allow ourselves to just kind of be steeped in the consciousness of him. And his guru in turn was Paramahansa Yogananda. Paramahansa Yogananda um, came from India in 1920 to America. Uh, and his background was he, when he was young, he was a um, very devotional and he wanted nothing more than to be a, a sadhu to go off into the mountains and live alone and meditate all the time in a cave somewhere. And, and in high school, he tried running away several times to go to the Himalayas to be able to, to live with the yogis. And, and eventually, and of course, these plans were thwarted, but eventually uh, he never stopped his aspiration and he never stopped um, uh, being very devoted. Uh, when he was 15 years old, he and his best friend from across the street would sneak out at night to go meditate. How many 15-year-olds do you know who sneak out at night, you know, to go do something spiritual? Mostly it's to get in trouble. I remember I was 15. And I don't think the world's changed a whole lot since then. So here is he and his friend. And, and, and 15, 16 years old, still in high school, uh, they rented a little hut about a kilometer from their house, rented this little hut and whitewashed it and made it into their little temple, their little mandir or shrine and so they would meet there and their other and along with their other friends and people would come in they'd have a weekly little satsang a little uh, weekly little reading of scripture and chanting and meditate together this is this was his life in high school and then uh, when he graduated from college finally he was he, he agreed not to uh, become a swami and not to join the the Swami order and take vows until after he completed his college. So, so after completing college, uh, his guru um, initiated him into the Swami order. And so he became, uh, so, so Mukunda Lal Ghosh was his name growing up in Mukunda. And so Mukunda then took the vows of uh, Swami and became Yogananda, Swami Yogananda. And then for the next uh oh the next six or seven years he spent uh he, he started developing a school and the school became quite successful and then finally he left that school and the organization he had helped his guru to uh to grow to come to america and began the self-realization fellowship and uh, all the wonderful work that they're doing so this was paramahansa yogananda and his guru was Swami Sri Yukteswar, who, who was born Priyanath Karar. And Priyanath Karar uh, was born into a wealthy family. And he was very, very bright, very, very gregacious and very, very interested in learning everything. So he just wanted to know everything about everything. And he had this wonderful mind that was able to, to make sense and to discern and discriminate. And, and so... So he was really quite a remarkable young man, and and everyone loved to have him around. He was he was somebody that that, that he would hold court. You know, everyone would listen when he talked, even though he was still young. He would be at social gatherings with lawyers and doctors and you know professional people, and they would pay attention to what he had to say. So he was that kind of a person, athletic, um, 
he he loved music. He learned to play the sitar and actually was was pretty good at it. And but he was also very spiritually oriented. And so whenever someone that was spiritual, whenever there was a saint or a yogi or someone who uh, that he heard about, he would go check them out and go see whether they were real or not. And if they were, then he would learn from them. And if they weren't, then he would kind of expose them and say, "This is you know this guy's a charlatan." And so. Uh, eventually, he was he heard about uh, this great saint in Benares, um, who was kind of private, and nobody would tell him much more than that their guru, you know, told him not to talk about him. So, <laughs> so he was kind of a secret yogi. Uh, but Priyanath tracked him down, went to Benares and tracked him down, and eventually he was uh, initiated by uh, by this great one, became his disciple. And then studied with him for many years. And then after the passing of his guru, Priyanath Karar took the vows of a Swami and became Swami Sri Yukteswar. And along the way, he had been developing groups, uh, study groups, teaching Bhagavad Gita, meditating, Kriya Yoga, and uh, Jyotish, Vedic astrology. So he was also very bright and very engaged. And, and the spiritual life was his whole life. His guru, the one that he tracked down in Benares, was Shyamacharan Lahiri. And Shyamacharan was another uh, prodigy when he was very young. He was very bright and very focused, a good student. Uh, he learned several languages, five or six languages uh, in school, and was uh, athletic, strong, um, and very devotional. He would come home from school and have a snack and then go to the temple and and do the puja and chant his uh, prayers. And, and so he grew up and, and he was, you know, when he came of age, it was uh, at the time when the, the British Far India Trading Company was, was uh, being set aside by the British government because there had been a lot of, a lot of uh, abuses and there were problems and, you know, it had gotten to be quite a thing. And so the British government was now taking over control of India. And so the only job that uh, Shyamacharan could get was a job as a clerk with the military, with the British military. And because he knew all these languages and was very, you know, bright, he was able to have this job and, and do very well. He didn't get paid much, so he made up a little extra by being a tutor to the British soldiers that he was there stationed with. And he would teach them uh, Urdu and uh, Bengali and, and Hindi and uh, these languages so that they could get along and then, you know, and they would compensate him. So he made a little extra money to help support his family. And uh, in 1868, he was transferred to the, to the hills in Ranikhet up in the, uh, the foothills of the Himalayas. And there he met this sadhu, this, uh, this renunciate, this individual who had, you know, forsaken family and society and all the comforts of life and was living out in the woods in the cave or wherever he was uh, you know wherever he was comfortable at the time wandering from place to place meditating deeply uh totally immersed in his spiritual sadhana and and so um Shyamacharan met him and this was the great saint babaji baba means father and so uh, it's a term of respect and so we really don't know much about Babaji 
at all. We don't know his name. We don't know how old he is. The rumors are, the mythology is that he was over 300 years old when he met uh, Shyamacharya. And this is possible. There are there are techniques, there are procedures that yogis have that uh, that allow them to kind of go into a into a very quiescent state for months, several months. It's called kaya kalpa, and basically they go into a little hut and someone you know attends them by bringing a little bit of herbs and some a little bit of food, not much, and they stay inside this little hut for. Uh, for four to six months, they don't go out. They don't talk to anybody. They don't read anything. There's nothing. There's nothing in there. Mostly just dark. And in the beginning, it's it's many days, weeks of just sleeping, mostly just mostly sleep, 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 and then a deep rest. And then as the the need for sleep subsides somewhat, then there's more time for meditation and a little mild hatha yoga. But this is it, all alone in this womb-like little hut for so many months. And they say that uh, the process results in a total youthening. They say they come out with a, a new head of hair, grow a new set of teeth, and start off when they're uh, 70 or 80 years old and come out looking like they're 40 at the prime of life. And so there are, there are stories about this, not just one. There, this is in the tradition. So... So it's possible that uh, that Babaji may have been actually 300 years old, and and it's and it's possible that as a result of his advanced age and long, long sadhana, long practice, that he was very powerful, had some very, you know, some good juju, so um, and was able to communicate this, and and the story is that he he authorized Shyamacharan. Um, to return back to, to his home, to become a householder once again, and to teach others um, the basic principles. Now, you know, householders were, didn't have access to this, to this Raja Yoga, to this, uh, this practice, these deep spiritual practices that these yogis out in the mountains could do. And so, so Shyamacharan was able to innovate. He was able to modify this and get kind of the essence, the core, together that would be useful for householders. How can we that are living in the world still take advantage of this and, and, and uh, benefit from it? And so what we have now is our Kriya Yoga practice is the result of this innovation of Shyamacharan Lahiri and his teaching emphasis, which has come through this tradition. So our Kriya Yoga tradition goes all the way back to some very, very powerful roots, some very, very grounded experiential uh, understanding awareness experience of reality that has uh, it, it goes back for thousands of years but we have a direct link a direct channel a direct connection for this consciousness and this particular frequency this particular flavor of consciousness that comes through this tradition so babaji's consciousness is comes through shamacharan lahiri who is also referred to as Lahiri Mahashaya. And while he was alive, he was called Lahiri Baba or Kashi Baba. Kashi was the ancient name for Benares. So, um, so Lahiri Mahashaya and his consciousness and his influence and teaching uh, transformed 
Priyanath Karar and to Swami Sri Yukteswar and his consciousness and his teaching and his example transformed uh, Mukundalal Ghosh into uh, Swami Yogananda and then later Paramahansa Yogananda. And his influence and his consciousness and his teaching uh, transformed Mr. Davis from Roy Eugene Davis into Roy Eugene Davis to our guru. And so we have a connection, a lineage here. This tradition is a living thing and we can have, uh, have an honor it and have respect for it and participate. You know, the way we honor it is by doing what they suggest that we do so that we can fulfill their vision for us. I mean, there's nothing in it for any of these. There's nothing in it for Roy or for Yogananda or for Creative Tesfar. None of these you know, individuals who, who, who played this role and who woke up, none of them benefit anything uh, by this, but, but they did dedicate their life and their service to being able to communicate what they thought would be really helpful for us. And so we can honor that by fulfilling their vision and waking up to being what we can be. See? So this is, uh, this is available and, and we highly encourage that. So I think this is a good place to, uh, to end for this morning, for this week. Thank you all for joining us, being with us. And um, we've had a wonderful opportunity to interact and to share. Uh, and and if, before we uh, adjourn, are there any questions? Anything that we've uh, that I forgot to talk about? I should sure talk about it enough. Um, I, think. I I do have a question. Yes. I I worked again the ministry and meditation teachers related the second day today. And I have a question about um, we talked that day on the stages from um, super consciousness to um, the stage, the next stage, and then the stage, the final stage of liberation of consciousness. My question is um, I didn't um, actually understand very well how does uh, super consciousness brings us to the next level. How do we use um, super consciousness to grow to a deeper level? That's okay, that's good. And that's a very good question. And the answer is we don't. We don't use super consciousness to make something happen and take us to the next level. This is a um, first place, super conscious means super means above or beyond. So consciousness, normal waking consciousness, which Mr. Davis would remind us is normally blurred, fragmented, distracted, all over the place. So this is normal conscious, normal waking consciousness, the internal dialogue and all the little distractions that come up. So when we're able to keep our awareness and our attention focused, to be very intentional and to be not distracted by all the thoughts and the free association, but to be very awake and aware, then this, this is super consciousness. This is above this normal way of operating. So we, so we begin in our meditation practice, we begin 
by quieting down the senses and quieting down the fluctuations. And as we quiet down all these things, we become more aware, more aware of what we are and more aware of the nature. And we, and we become, as the witness, as the seer, we, be, we notice the thoughts. We notice these things that are percolating and we can disregard them easily. It doesn't mean that they go away. It just means that we're not giving them any attention. They're just kind of in the background. It's like that little, that little small pebble that's in the shoe that, you know, you feel it, but you, but it's not worth stopping and taking the shoes off and right now. And so we just kind of live with it. There's this little, these little fluctuations, this stuff in the background of the mind, but we're mostly just aware. Okay. So this is super conscious. We are above normal states of consciousness. And then as we sit with that, as we are able to, disregard the thoughts and, the, and some of them you know the vasanas the impulses that push some of these and, the, and some of the thoughts kind of get a little demanding and a little more persistent and you have to turn our attention back turn our attention back so we do this eventually when the thoughts subside to the place where they're just barely a little murmur in the background so there is so there's not a switch that goes from super consciousness to this concentrated consciousness you know, rather than it's it's a continuum, it's a sliding scale. It's gradual. It's like turning the volume down, 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 down. And as we turn the volume of the noise, of the the the, 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 the vrittis, the fluctuation, as we turn the volume down, it gets quieter and quieter. And so we label the stage when it gets very quiet, when we're able to actually sit for for a little time concentrated with our attention just flowing to an object to one point in this experience to let go of all these little uh, distractions that bubble up and to let go of uh, experience you know we talked about this the other day to let go of the experience of seeing light and feeling bliss and ecstasy and hearing sounds to even let go of those because those are all still happening in mind and so we turn the volume down, we let go. And so what happens is we're actually, we're actually allowing this to unfold. So we're not making something happen. We're not using super consciousness to get to super, super consciousness to samadhi, but rather we're using awareness, attention, we're using our focused attention to allow this process, to, this self to naturally open itself up to blossom. So we have the little bud that starts off when we sit to meditate. And if we can really keep the, the environment just right, just the right amount of moisture and just the right amount of light, keep the environment just right, then it blossoms and it becomes beautiful. And it dominates our awareness. Our awareness is now the self, infinite. And there isn't anything we can say about it because when we start talking, we have to use words and words are concepts and words are limited. And, this, and the mind loves to do this, you know? So we start to feel very, very quiet and very calm. And then the mind says, well, look, we've achieved calm and quiet. Isn't that something? You know, but that's, that's just another more subtle level of the mind wanting to keep playing its little games. So 
so we have to go, okay, well, I'm going to have to allow myself to have this experience and not let the mind get active. I have to sneak up on it and maybe the mind will be distracted long enough that I can actually rest in this experience. And as I do, I become quieter, the mind becomes quieter, and this, this is an unfolding process. So does that make sense? Does that help? Good. Okay. So thank you. That's a good, that's a good question and, and one that we can come back to many times to really get grounded in. Um, all right. So uh, enjoy your day, the rest of your day, your week, your month, your year, your life. It's all, all blessing, all gift and grace. So we can be very joyful as we go through and remember to be kind of lightly tiptoe, tip tiny chin, tip, tiptoe through the tulips, <laughs> to wear our character lightly, to wear, you know, this persona lightly, not make it too heavy and allow ourselves to experience uh, joy and happiness and continual unfolding, continual awakening. We want to aspire to be fully awake, fully liberated in this lifetime, and, and we can do it. Namaste.